Zach explains to them, this is what's going to happen. We're going to leave the city together. We're all going to walk out through the gates. You're not going to talk to anybody else today. You're never going to mention that word again, but we're all going to walk out of the city gates. Once we're outside of the gates, we're outside of the city proper, you're going to open your chest of holding and you're going to get in it. All of you, including Twill. And I will let you out when it's time to let you out. At no point does he say this is optional. This is He's telling them how it's going to work. They're like, okay, well, if there's this many of us in there, we have this much air before you know we die. He's like, okay, that's fine. Thank you for telling me that. Probably important to have. He goes, it'll take longer than that to get there. We will stop on occasion. I will open the chest, allow, allow it to refill with air, which this is they've had to do before when they've been sneaky in places and such in the adventure. They've used this theme, hiding inside the chest of holding. But normally, they know how, depending on how many people are in there, how much air they get. And the more people the lower amount of time. Darsh counts as a two people. It's always been that way. So they calculate with everybody in there how much time they have. Every so often they can open the chest. They don't have to get out. Just opening it for, I think it was five minutes, will refresh the air. Then he closed it, continue on their way. So that's what they do. They leave. They tell the, the Templars, hey, we'll be back to talk to Mayor and Bart later. Something's come up. Please let them know. We'll chat with them as soon as we return, but everything is okay. Templars are like, okay, cool. You're leaving. Your member's in good standing. Zach and Twilla members are in good standing. They're friends, everybody. Everybody's happy. And so they leave. And they march out the city. They walk almost without talking, except Dandy and Twill. Dandy and Twill are chatting like crazy about other stuff. Twill's being very careful, although it's hurting him, not to talk about where they're going. Uh, but Twill... Dandy does whisper a few things like, oh, I didn't know you were a cleric. That's totally cool. He's like, yeah, I've been a cleric for a long time. And then a little bit of that going on. But eventually they travel the distance up a road. They go off into some trees, so on and so forth. And Twill tells them to open the chest, or Zach tells them to open the chest of holding. Twill's first one in. He's excited. A, he's never been in chest of holding before, and that's pretty awesome. B, he's never been in chest of holding that shrinks, which is also awesome. And, you know, where he's going is the most awesome. So they all climb in, and sure enough, they're, they had to tell him the command word, of course. And when you're inside, you don't feel movement. They're just basically in there sitting there chatting with a small candle burning for a little bit of light, but they don't use much because, again, calculation for oxygen. They're, they're, we've, we've talked about it a lot while we played the game. How much air based on people versus what. And all of that's assuming you have one candle burning the whole time. And so, every so often, they, the, the door up top, the chest opens. They feel a rush of breeze of air come in because usually by that point it's starting to get a little stiffy in there. And then they have cool, five minutes they are closed. At no time, do they try to climb out? And at no time does Zach ever look down or open. They don't see anything. They just sit there. All they see is sky if they look up. This happens multiple times. It's several hours that they're in there at this point. And time works normal in there as it does everywhere else. Several hours is literally several hours. And once they're inside, Twill starts telling more stories of his. How... Uh, years ago, he was traveling, just being a good old kinder guy, adventuring in the world. He was young for his age. He was only about 14 or 15 while he was traveling um, when he came across an injured man. Uh, the man was injured on the side of the road. He'd been taken in by brigands, or browns, whatever you want to call them, attacked. Um, and he helped nurse the man back to health a bit and get him back to the town. He got him to the temple and was in that town. And while he was there, the person, you know, invited him in to have something to eat, and oddly enough, for the first time in his life, Twill never found anything. 
At no time did anything accidentally end up in his pockets. And Ken aren't normally aware that that happens, but it just, nothing new happened. And while he was there, an elven gentleman introduced himself. It turns out the man that he saved was uh, a cleric of Protovarius. And saving Zack was the elf, of course. He happened to be there, and this was someone who had served Zack. And Zack and Twill ended up chatting, and Twill stayed there, and Zack left, and he came back every few times, and when he came back, Twill just always kept coming back to there, and he just had a good time, and, uh, and during that time, the other cleric that was there was teaching him more about dragons and protovarius and so on, and Twill was a very apt student. And then uh, Zack became good friends with him, and basically at that point introduced him, explained what he was. I am a dragon. I'm offering you the chance to serve as a cleric, and so on and so forth. They became good friends. Zack is the only living creature in existence, sorry, Twill is the only living creature in existence that knows Zack's true name. Not even the other dragons know his true name. That's incredibly powerful to know a dragon's true name. <clears throat> but that's just a sign of how much Zack trusts Twill. Which is a big thing, because Kendra don't normally keep secrets. So that's, that's pretty big sauce. But they've been friends for years now. And then the merge happened, and of course they were together when it happened. The New World was a whole adventurous thing. They started making maps, which is what they kind of did before anyways, was explore and have adventure. Because Zack has always been an adventurous, rebellious kind of dragon. Eventually the chest of holding opens up, and they hear Zack call down for Twill. Twill rushes to the bottom of the ladder and looks up. And he then turns to me and says, Okay, we can, we can come out now. And Zach's, Twill's hands are a little, even a little bit shaking. You can tell he's nervous. Which, not like fear, but just of excitement. Climbs up the ladder and they all come out. And they, they're on a very green rolling hill. Um, very pretty. Very nice sky. I mean, puffy clouds and such. Um, they have a feel of height. You know what I mean? When you're in a high altitude, you normally can feel that, even though there's no cliffs, it's just land going off what they can see here. It just feels like the air's a little thinner, that they're, they're at a great height. The clouds seem a little bit closer than they should be. And Twill comes out, and he's just smiling. On the ground in different areas, there are some rock statues that are clearly of dragons. Uh, very well made. Uh, they definitely look old, they're slightly crumbly, they're not in mint condition, um, but he's just going around looking at all of them and being careful, and he's holding his hands like this. Zack has taught him in, in important moments to hold your hands like this, he's less likely to steal things. Um, and so he's just going around reading everything, uh, looking at them, there's writings and such that are in the language of dragons, which Zack has taught Twill to read some of that. Can't speak it, because mortals can't speak dragon tongue. But they can read some of the sigils and runes that come with that. After a few moments of standing there, and Zack not really talking to them, everybody's standing there like, okay, well, what do we do now? A sound starts happening, repetition. Like a woomph, woomph, woomph. It's slower, but slowly woomphing, but getting closer. And sure enough, after a moment or two, breaking through the clouds, they see a dragon. And this dragon is massive. By far larger than any dragon they've ever seen or even heard of. 
let me stop real quick by saying this is not a god. I'm going to clear that up. This is not Protovarius. All gods, even the Dragon Lord, is trapped outside this world by the shield that's blocking all the gods from getting in. But this dragon is one of the eldest and is the protector of the Dragon Isles. He wumps down and he's huge. And Zack immediately drops to one knee in front of him. And as he does, his body shifts and he turns into a large brass dragon. Okay. Way smaller than this big dragon, which I don't remember if I just said what color he was. It's, it's, not, it's platinum. It's a platinum dragon, which again is rare as well. So this big one is a platinum dragon. And he lands, and he nods to Zack, and Twill just falls on his knees beside Zack because he knows who this is. He knows this is one of the elders uh, and the Keeper of the Dragon Isles, and he's just, you know, awash. And they can feel just the magic wafting over, washing over them from this dragon. This is an ancient dragon. And the dragon speaks, but speaks into their minds. Very old. Also using telepathy. Startles them for just a second, but they just were talking to an elithid for, for weeks on end, so they're not completely blown away by the concept. And it welcomes them. It says that they stand in a place where very few mortals have ever been allowed to stand. But that Zack had told of their quest, of their mission, and how they came to know these lands exist. It's still important they don't know where they are, which is why they've been in a chest of holding for hours. Zack was flying them here without them knowing how to get here. Even Twill can't know that. But you were invited here because of what you seek and because of what you already have achieved. The stones that you've brought together have not been gathered in one place in millennia. And the fact that they're coming together now after the massive chaotic events that created this new, and he stops for a second, world that we stand on is clearly a sign. I have prayed to the great worm himself for guidance in this matter. And I have only been let known that we are to assist you. But in doing so, you must never speak of this place, hint, or even imply that it exists, even to each other. You must never discuss this place, the conversation that we're having right now. Dandy being dandy has no problem speaking up in this very solemn moment and says, how come? Zack is taken back. Even Twill's like, don't! And if a dragon could smile, which they do, and it's not very appealing and teethy, I'm going to say because, little one, humans are dangerous. Should they find that this place exists, they would seek it out and eventually find it. And we can't have that. But you're dragons, Dandy says. There's a lot of dragons, and you guys are big. We fought dragons. Sorry to say that. Hope it wasn't somebody you knew. It wasn't a brother or nothing. Didn't mean anything. But you know, we've we've had adventures with dragons before. They're 
a bunch of you guys together, I, I don't think you could do a whole lot. The Platinum Dragon says, humans are more dangerous than anything else in existence. Because when humans find something of value or something they want, there's nothing that will stop them from going after it. And that greed and that curiosity will grow and spread to others. And then more humans will start looking. And then all humans. And once that thought is in their mind that they want something, nothing is more dangerous than that. And so that thought, that idea, can never be allowed to spread for the fear of what could happen. Because an all-out war towards dragons and humans would cause chaotic disruption across all the land. And I don't think any of us want that. Characters agree that'd probably be bad. Zack shifts back to his elven form, still on his knee, nods and he, reach up and he reaches down and Twill takes his hand and Twill stands up and you can tell that the dragon is saying something to Twill and Twill's just got this giant grin on his face and he's nodding and nodding and such and Zack is smiling looking down at Twill and Zack turns to them and speaks and says we'll be leaving you now in his hands I hope to see you again someday and I do wish you the best on your journeys he reached down, and he holding Zach Twill's hand. They go walking off in a direction until they're literally just walking away. And Zach, Zach's walking normal, but Twill's kind of skipping in his hands. He's just excited, and they just kind of wander off. The Platinum Dragon, he's kind of resting now, and he was standing up. He's kind of settled down into a bit more comfortable position. Says that the stone you seek is not here, and we don't have it. But I know where it is. In fact, I may be one of the only living beings that does, outside the gods themselves. And I will take you there. Because I've been commanded to do so. But you must remember your promise. And know that we will be watching. And should you ever break that, we will have no choice but to destroy all of you, everyone you know, and anyone you may have potentially said it to. It's just too important. Characters are like, okay, well, we don't want us and everyone to get killed. No problem. We won't ever tell that part of the story. Even to the clerics, Brother Bart, Sister Mary, they're not allowed to talk about that part. It's all quite clear. And they don't. Once again, they're told to get inside their chest of holding, and they do. And they're in there for like another hour, hour and a half. Again, then he knows the command word. He does stop every so often and let air in. They don't kill them. <laughs> and when the, it opens up the last time and, and they hear the voice in their minds to come out, the wind comes rushing in. It is cold. Very cold. And they climb out and literally they're in the snow. And they quickly hop back down. They've got some jackets and blankets and things they can wear because, you know, they're prepared for stuff. It's a chest of holding. Why not bring it? They bundle up it and they come back out. And... The dragon's not there. But in their minds, they hear, what you seek is above. And they're in a mountain range. There's just mountains everywhere. 
tall. They're like in the middle of a little valley surrounded by them. But in front of them is a thin path that seems to be going up around it. And up at the top of one, they can see what looks like some type of building way up high. And there's lights in it. This path, there's no footprints. It's blowing a light snow. It's really cold. It's windy. The path does not stay the same height. It looks old and it's slippery. Uh, but that's they got nothing else to do. So they grab the chest of holding and they start making their way up. It takes a little while. It's slippery. They have to go slow. They're being very careful. There's a couple cool rolls in there to see if they fall. They don't, though. They made it. They finally scale up to the top of this mountain. It takes a while. As they're going, wind and blowing harder, and they're having to be careful as they're going up, they reach what looks like a, almost like a, a tower. It's not really a castle. But there's two big wooden doors. There's a door knocker there, and of course, Darsh, the only person uses the door knocker, big guy. It's cold. After a moment, the doors creak open. And a man steps out. He wears robes. No hair on his head. His skin almost gold in color. He has a headband on. Tied in the back. Very Rambo-like. Um, and it's gold as well. The robes have like a brownish gold tint. The man nods. And mentions them and welcomes them inside. Doesn't say anything. But invites them in. It's cold, and it looks warm in there. They go. Now the monk, because this is a monastery, hopefully everybody picked up on that by now, directs them to follow him again without speaking. Walks down a small like walkway, what do I want to look for? A hallway. Then turns through a set of doors. As they go in, they see there's a, a large room. Several large tables on it. Wooden benches. A lot of monks looking just like this person. I mean, not identical. You know, twins, not clones. But same humanoid looking gold tin, dressed the same way, headband. Are all sitting at the table, eating. No one's talking. And at the other end of the room is another table. With three more standing. But their headbands are different colors. And two of them are sitting, and one's sitting up higher than the other's. And the monk just directs them up there, and then he goes and takes a seat and sits down and starts eating. They look at each other, and the monks don't really be seen paying much attention to him. They're just eating like they're not even there. They uh, walk up to the table, walk up to these three, and they kind of stop a, stop a good distance away. And Artemis is, says, hello there. My name is Artemis. This is Darsh, Mercy, and Dandy. Um, we were told to come here um, because we're seeking a magic item that I'm guessing you might have or it might be here. Um, we were brought here by a friend who told us this would be the place. She's being very careful not to mention anything about the dragons or dragon area. The monk in, in the center speaks and says, well, we know why you're here and we welcome you. We've waited a very long time for your arrival. And everything's quiet. And they look around at the other monks, and all the monks are just staring at them. You have all the other stones? The monk in front speaks. Artemis says, we do. 
he says. If you will follow me, please. And he stands up and begins walking to their left, his right. They follow him. He starts walking up hallways and he's going different ways. Goes up some stairs, down stairs. Walking for a good ten minutes, going all over the place. They get lost very easily. This place was built into the side of a mountain near the top. So it's at this point they're in the mountain. They're walking and walking. <clears throat> and he finally comes to a door. And these doors are a little bit more decorative than any of the doors they've seen. They've passed. They've passed other doors, which are bedrooms, or kitchens, whatever. But this door is metal. And etched with different designs on it. Nothing specific. Not like animals, but like fleur-de-lis type kind of stuff. Like the symbols and such. Very decorative. Appears to be copper doors. The monk waves his hand kind of like this. The doors slowly open. He steps inside. And they step inside with him. They follow him in. And they're in a round... They're coming in a door into a round chamber. And he walks to the center of the chamber and stops and turns around to face them. Around the room are doors. There are seven of them. He says, if you wish to gain the final stone, you must seek it. Only one of you will be found worthy to have it. You must each choose a different door and of your own free will. If you wish to seek the stone, go inside. And they're like, we can't go into the same door? He goes, if you wish to have any hope at being deemed worthy for the stone, you must each choose a different door. Now I'm going to tell you, my characters, my players, did not like that. Not a big fan of me splitting them up. But without any really other choice to do. Clearly he knows why they're there. He didn't ask them for the stones. They have the stones. Right now they're in the chest of holding, which currently Artemis is holding. Normally Artemis has it. The reason for that is, is she's always in the middle. They're protecting her. She's less likely to run in and be separated from the group. So she's usually carrying the chest of holding. <clears throat> if not her, it usually then falls to Darsh or Mercy, who can better protect it. Um, Dandy might lose it, so they're careful there. But they're like, okay, do we take the stones with it? He goes, you must choose a door and go through it. He just kind of stands there and looks at them. They're like, okay, well, he's not going to be much help. So they talk about it for a minute. All the doors look identical. Normal wooden doors. Average height. You know, Darsh may have to stoop a little bit to get in, but not too bad. They all look like normal doors. There's nothing that differentiates them from the other ones. So without much to do, they're like, okay, well, I guess let's pick a door. And they all just immediately step away to a door. And it's kind of interesting because when they do that, just instinctually, they all walk to a different door, and they stop, and they're like, okay, well, all right. And they all walk towards the door that just instinctually they would walk to. And they all walk, reach down, turn the doorknob, door opens easily, inside is only darkness. One last look at each other, they all step inside. Darsh finds himself walking down a long tunnel. He can hear the thumping of feet 
clapping of hands, chanting. And as he's walking, the stomping of feet is enough to even make the ground shake a little bit. Hey, Teresa. Hey, I'm back. AC issues. Luckily, mine are in the air fixed. Oh, good. Okay, well, yeah, this is not a good time to lose your air conditioning. <laughs> I'm glad she's back up again. But Darsh feels the ground even shaking a little bit with, with, with like a stomping of feet and the clapping of hands. There must be a lot of people doing that to move it. And he's walking down, and as he walks out, he it's a familiar feeling. He knows what's going on. He walks out, he sees light ahead, and the door's open. And Darsh steps out, and in his hands, he knows he's holding his shield, and he has his sword. He looks down, he sees his dragon hide shield that he made, he's got, or had made. He's got his huge sword in his hand, and he steps out into the arena, and the cheers of thousands. Looking up, he sees Minotaur all over shouting, cheering, raising their fists. Looking in one section to where he knows the Emperor would be, he sees, assuming the Emperor is way over there, up there on the ends, raises his sword towards the Emperor as he would. The Emperor raises his hands, everyone cheers again. Darsh knows it is his time to fight. It's become his chance. And the doors across from him open. And out come two huge bears. Massive. Larger than any bears Darsh has ever seen. Bigger than him. Come charging through around their necks. Big collars and spikes. Oh. Thank you, Tip Joshua, for the follow. I appreciate that. Big spiked collars. They come barreling forth. Foam and hatred in their mouths. Just growling. Come through the doors, charging directly at him. Darsh charges forward. The battle is quick, but bloody. As the second bear hits the ground, its head separated. Darsh can see huge claw rifts through his chest armor and sees the blood leaking out. Deep wounds, but not enough to take him down. Darsh raises sword and shield in victory, and the crowd cheers. He raises his weapons to the Emperor, and again the Emperor raises his hand. The crowd cheers again, and the doors that he originally came through burst open. And out of this one came... Let me grab the right one. Mm. And out of this one came, comes a... Um, oh God, I'm losing the world. Um, wyvern. I'm not sure what a wyvern is. Imagine a creature with a lion's head, bat wings, and a scorpion's tail. A wyvern comes out. Ten feet, tip to tail, wingspan probably about fifteen feet. Comes charging out. Darsh attacks it as well. Bows. At one point, he feels the cut of the scorpion sting in his arm, and he knows that he's been poisoned. But he manages to cut the tail off. As the dragon or the wyvern's head comes down to chew him, he drops his weapons and grabs the jaw itself, and the. The head's bigger than his. It's just literally coming down trying to bite him. With all his strength, Darsh hurls backwards and he feels the jaw snap as he breaks the skull of this thing. And as it squeals, he turns the head and he feels the neck break. The wyvern falls to the ground, twitching. The crowd is just going crazy at this point, cheering, calling for blood. Darsh, injured, bleeding from several wounds, his arm a little bit numb now as he knows he's been poisoned. Raises his hands again after picking up his weapon and his shield. Cheers again from all around. Darsh knows that he's passed two of the three challenges. 
the f doors open, the ones the bears came out of, and walking out comes a minotaur, twice as large as Darsh. Metal helm covering its head with only the horn sticking out. Reddish tinged, where Darsh is very black haired. Large trident in one hand, shield in the other. Manticore? Um, no. Manticorn is a little bit different. Um, in Dungeons & Dragons, if you check it, they're, they're, they're very, they're alike. Um, the Chimera is the, I'm oh, sorry, the Wyvern. Wyverns you'll also see a lot um, if you're playing games like um, World of Warcraft. Um, the Horde fly on Wyverns, which look very much the same. They're the bat-winged, lion-headed creature, um, but they're much smaller in World of Warcraft. But Wyvern. Manticorn, we're going to see one of those eventually, so we'll talk about Manticorns in just a little bit. Uh, not today, but we'll see one of those in a little bit. Few. Um, so, the Wyvern, you know, dead. Now this giant monstrosity, bulky too, a little bit fat for a, min for a Minotaur, but huge, and scars and wounds and stuff. Both of his horns are broken off. I remember Darsh is missing half of one of his, but both this guy's horns are, looks like they're busted off at different lengths. And the crowd just starts chanting a name, and Darsh doesn't know the name. He knows it's not his. They're cheering this other mentor, and this is why Darsh has come. Dish, Darsh knew this is the final challenge. Clearly, he's experienced to live as long as he has, and he moves in slowly and cautiously, and Darsh enter into battle. Very quickly, the other Minotaur scores two really quick hits on Darsh. <laughs> he really did. Scored really high. Two big hits on Darsh. Trident stabbing into one of his legs. Now his left leg's going a little bit slow. And his arms, sword arm is starting to tingle a little bit more from the poison he knows from the, from the wyvern. And he's dragging the leg. But he's dragging the leg a little bit more than he should be. His leg's not quite as injured as he lets off. The other Minotaur comes in to try to get hit, seeing that Darsh isn't, but Darsh moves quicker than expected, faking that wound, and manages to score a big cut along the arm of the other Minotaur. And the Minotaur's sword hits the ground. The huge Minotaur throws his shield to the ground, holds his hands out like this, and the crowd starts chanting and stomping. Darsh knows he can't go at an unarmed opponent with weapons, so Darsh sets his weapons down as well. He's moving that arm. The two Minotaurs start to slowly circle, looking at each other. They both charge forward. In the next few minutes, flashes of teeth squeezing, horns slashing, because Minotaurs do have a bite attack in Dungeons & Dragons, in case you didn't know that. They have the horns and they have a teeth attack. And the other Minotaur is even stronger than Darsh, but Darsh still manages to be able to hold his own until finally Darsh feels the busted horn pierce his shoulder. Not of his sword arm, but the good arm. Darsh, cry, Darsh cries out, and he reaches down and pulls his arm free, and he grabs that horn, and he pulls hard, and he feels another chunk of it snap off. Which, that hurts, for the record. The other Minotaur notices that. The Minotaur flings, tosses Darsh, and Darsh spins a bit and lands on the ground, but comes back up on his feet in a moment. 
And the large minotaur comes charging in, and Darsh, with what strength he has left, charges forward as well. And in that moment, all he can rem- he gets a picture in his head of a small creature, a little girl, with long hair and a little staff. And he remembers seeing her swinging that staff at different things. And he doesn't remember who she is, but he, he remembers that she's important. And he remembers that dive she did. And he does the same thing. Right as they're about to hit the other hit each other, he literally throws himself down on his side and slides forward between the legs of the larger minotaur. And quickly bring himself up, brings his one good horn right up in the groin of the larger minotaur and feels it rip into skin and through flesh. The other minotaur, howling, falls forward, pulling Darsh's head down and finally dislodging off that horn. Darsh moves quickly, coming around, wrapping his arms around the neck of that minotaur and just squeezing as hard as he can even though his arms are getting numb and he feels the blood flowing out of himself, squeezing as hard as he can until finally the body shivers, shakes, and stops moving. And everything goes silent. Darsh wearily stands up, walking, half-stumbling, forward, picks up his sword and his shield, and he turns towards the Emperor, up into the stands, and all the minotaurs are standing there. But all of them are facing him silently. They're all in black robes, and the sky is now dark, swirling with red clouds. And he hears a sound behind him, and he turns, and the, the minotaur pulls the helmet off, and it's Craig, the minotaur he fought in Thorman. Larger, of course, but it's the same Minotaur. And Craig says, you don't understand what's already begun. The Empire will crumble, and death will ravage this world. And you can't stop it, Fohammer. In fact, we've chosen you to be its destruction. The blood of our people will be on your hands as death ravages the new worlds. With a small choke, Craig then falls over and, and, and finishes dying. All the minotaurs up in the stands as Darsh looks up all turn to face away from him. And he's standing there with thousands of minotaurs all facing away. All he sees are the, the black robes with the red trims all around taking his sword and shield walks forward through the, d- the doors opposite that he came in into another dark tunnel. Dandy is walking through a hallway steps out and is quick to stop as she's exiting out the hallway there's but a small couple steps and then a drop off of She can see that her hallway has led to a large open space. Oddly enough, lit, although there's no real light sources that she can see. Looking down, blackness. 
takes out one of her stones and she tosses it and listens and listens, but no sounds. That's a deep hole, Danny thinks to herself. That's not good. In the darkness across the way, she can see a couple, like another doorway, an arch. There's no door there, but a doorway across the chasm with another stall, pedestal it. And again, light seems to be coming from that hallway. The room going left and right, or the, the space, is a large square room. Again, nothing else wall rise. But coming out of the darkness are poles of different lengths. Some go to the ceiling, some stop at different heights. Some of them are just poles. Some of them have different landings or square plots of wood or stone on the top. So if you imagine that, different all across this room are different poles, different sized square or round landings on some of them. Sometimes there may be one of those and then the pole goes up, there's another one. Some are just poles that stop. So it's just literally a flat pole on the top. Some go to the ceiling. Dandy immediately starts looking. She goes, hey, if I had to get across, she starts trying to pick a path. She's like, okay. That one's close enough to this one, that one there. I can't go that way, that's too far apart. And starts plotting out a path. And after a couple minutes, she's like, okay, I think I can I think I can make this. There's nowhere else to go. I gotta get to the other side. Stepping back, she makes a quick running start and jumps, landing on the first pedestal a short ways below her. Stopping, she looks again. Okay, this one's next. She goes and she jumps. And this time she grabs onto a pole and putting her feet on it, she pushes off, landing, rolling on a larger platform. This one about four by four. As she lands, she hears the sound and instinctually turns to her left as the dagger goes flying by where her head was just moments earlier. Defensively, she reaches to her chest, because she has daggers across her chest, reaches to the hands of to herself and looks at the source and on one of the other pedestals between her and the doorway is another figure. It's hard to tell whether it's shadow or a person. Whoever it is is dressed all in black. Only their eyes visible. Very ninja-like, but not a ninja. If, but if you'll understand the concept there. They're dressed all in black. The figure draws another dagger out of its sheath because it has daggers as well and doesn't throw them, but starts hopping from pedestals towards Dandy. Very agile, very quickly. Clearly someone who's probably been in this room before. At points grabbing on and literally jumping and then pushing off of a pole to land on another one. Dandy's like, okay, we can do that. And she starts hopping towards him as well, also picking a path. And at times, figure will throw a dagger or some other type of bladed weapon she hasn't seen will come flying at her and she'll dodge them and throw one of her daggers as well, coming very close. Neither one of them successfully striking the other. Dandy keeping a close thought in her head of how many daggers she has. Her hoopack is strapped to her back but this type of situation is not going to bode well for a hoopack. The figure doesn't seem to be she sees daggers, but it never seems like he's running out, but he's throwing them sparingly as well. He or she, whatever it is, she can't tell. The figure is not much larger than her, but they're throwing, jumping and twirling, somersaulting and tossing. Both of them overwhelmingly, imagine two acrobats, jumping from trapeze to trapeze to rope to rope, while at the same time trying to kill each other. Dandy 
Dandy grabs onto one pole and lets herself slide down a little bit, knowing that there's a pedestal beneath. And as she hits the pedestal, she took too long, and she feels a dagger puncture her side. Crying out, she reaches down and she sees the knife sticking in. She pulls it out, and that hurts. Not only because she's pulling a dagger out, but she sees the blade is somewhat serrated. She's not happy about that. It doesn't feel right in her hand. The weight of it's not even right. It doesn't even feel like a throwing dagger. The fact that you could throw something so unweighted and hit her successfully is frustrating because Danny's like, that's, and just tosses it into the blackness. Now she's angry. That was rude. This was her favorite shirt. There's a hole in it now. I mean, Artemis can sew pretty well, but still, now there's going to be a little line where the stitches were. She has to get a whole new shirt. She paid a lot of money for this shirt. Well, she thinks she paid a lot of money. She remember finding the shirt. It was a nice shirt anyway. It's her favorite shirt. So she starts moving forward quicker. The figure matches. They're bouncing back and forth. And again, several rounds of throwing daggers. And she scores a hit on the, th on the person's leg. They lose their balance a bit, but manage to hang onto a pole. And they spin down and disappear into the darkness. She stops. She's looking. Did I get him? She waits and she's listening. Five or six minutes go by. And she dodges again as the dagger goes swinging by. She heard it in the air. He'd come up a pole behind her. She was expecting something like that. The player actually was. Did a very good job. Again, the battle continues. And Dandy's starting to run low on daggers. She's got about four left. And these are her most magical. Her most powerful of her daggers. Um, so, understand that in these daggers are the ones she usually saves the least. In Up to this point, Dandy has several magical daggers. None of them that are overwhelmingly important, like a dagger of flame or something, but she does have daggers that are like plus two, plus three. One of them's a silver dagger, plus two. She hangs on to. So, these four daggers are the daggers that normally she doesn't throw. She would save for melee, but she's starting to run out of options. Reaching into her pouch, she pulls out a handful of her sling stones, sling bullets, because she carries steel pellets. Um, she has stones as well, because that's more common, but when she needs to do real damage, she has those. And uh, hello, Logan, and will it glow? I did notice you're in there. I'm sorry. I was trying to get that part out. Thank you very much for coming back by the stream today. I appreciate you guys. <laughs> Continuing forward, she has this handful, and she's jumping. She's not throwing any of her daggers. Even though she's dodging the occasional dagger whipped at her by this other figure, she's being very careful to not throw any of hers. And they're getting close to each other. And she notices that a short distance between them, there's a much larger pedestal. In fact, two poles come up, and this one's probably about 12 feet by 12 feet. It's large, but it's slightly... Uh, corner slanted, so like one corner is lower than the opposite corner, so it's it's not completely flat. And some of these that I've mentioned aren't flat. Some of them are on different angles, but this one's a little bit more crooked than any of the others. And Dandy's like, okay, the path that she's going, it's going to bring them both into that one. And Dandy's like, trying to make sure that happens. She's trying to duck, because if she can get to melee range, she may have an edge on this person. He seems to be whipping stuff, but she doesn't see... He's, she's got a hoop act. Doesn't see anything like a hoop act on this guy. 
So they land there. And she jumps, and as she jumps, he jumps as well. But as she's landing, she throws the stones down. The guy tries to dodge him. He's already in midair, and he lands on them and literally slides on the stones. It was an incredibly good idea. I didn't think of that. The player that played Dandy did. It's a very good idea, and we rolled successfully. Lost his grip and fell. And because Dandy's on the lower end, he comes sliding towards her. He quickly regains his feet. But in that moment, Dandy was able to draw her daggers, and she does throw one of her magical daggers, and it's the dagger plus three she has. It's one of her strongest daggers. And she throws that and then draws her hoopack. And it's successful. It stabs him kind of in the chest, a little bit off-center of the shoulder. It's not enough to get a heart, but definitely not up in the meat of the shoulder. It's a little bit more chest the figure makes no noise, but definitely is affected by it. And that arm now is a little lower. It doesn't try to pull it out, though. But that arm is, starts nursing a little bit. He reaches down and he pulls out a dagger out of his other, with his other hand. Again, he doesn't really see the sheath. You don't really see where he's pulling all these daggers out of How is he not running out by this point? And Dandy, trying to decide whether she wants to go hoopack or daggers, decides to get her hoopack. And she grabs it. She's going to go melee with her hoopack because it gives her the added reach over the daggers. And as they get close, he comes at her, she defends. It only takes a minute or two before he scores a good hit, and her hoop hack goes flying from her hands off the edge down into the darkness. In her head, she's like, I just made that one! Dandy goes through a lot of hoop hacks. Usually it's her fault, but Dandy loses a lot of hoop hacks. Grabbing two daggers, she jumps into melee, and they start fighting again. Now, the figure's arm is clearly at this point gone almost limp, and he's fighting with one. And Dandy is coming at him. Again, she's not angry. Dandy doesn't get that way. But she understands what she has to do. She doesn't want to, but she's been put in this position. And so she starts attacking quite vigorously. And here and there, she's scoring a hit. He gets one in on rare occasion, but she's scoring three to every one of his. And then finally, he makes a kind of a last fort lunge, and Dandy rolls... And Danny strikes harder than she even planned and quickly spins and thunks one of the dagger blades straight into his back. And thank you, War Elven, for the follow. I appreciate that. Right where his heart would be. And the figure stumbles back and the other blade falls from his hand. And he falls to his side on the edge of the edge of the platform. And he, looks at her and she looks at him in her mind she's like I'm sorry I didn't want to you kind of made me have to do that I didn't want to Artemis is in here so I can't heal you I don't know what to do and the figure reaches up with the weak arm still limp but and pulls the mask off and sitting on his knees there is Michael And all he can whisper through the blood flowing out of his mouth is, Thank you. My soul is now redeemed. And he falls off the side of the pedestal into the darkness. Dandy is crushed. And she wants to go after him. But she knows the hit she got was mortal. There's no stopping that. And she knows that there are people depending on her. And through her tears... She continues to 
across the pedestals until she makes across the room to the other landing and walks through the gateway down the tunnel. Artemis exits the door and is on a city street. And it's chaos. People are running, screaming. She can smell smoke from fires, but immediately the smell of decay hits her nose. She's in an alleyway and she sees bodies just piled along the, the walls, pustules, some type of plague or infection swollen in the heat. The buildings appear to be made of some kind of sandstone. The ground is a light sand. She's in a very hot, humid area, desert-like. She comes to the end of the, the road and she can see there's just dead bodies all over the place and other people are grabbing things and trying to, looks like they're trying to flee, avoiding the few sick people that are trying to stumble around. They're not zombies, they're just sick people. Artemis is looking and she's just, again, the, the, it's a large city and it seems to be kind of a, a rolling hills and all the buildings are made of the same type of material, although they're different shapes and such. It's definitely like a desert kind of town. And the heat doesn't help. The bodies are swollen and stinky. And as she's looking around trying to figure out what's going on, most people aren't paying attention to her. Everybody's just running everywhere. Out of, her, out of the corner of her eye, she looks across and across this road in an alleyway, she sees stumbling around a young child, a human. And the human cl child is clearly sick. Plague, illness, whatever's going on, doesn't matter. Her instinct, she rushes across the street trying to avoid the few wagons and horse-drawn buggies going through. And again, when I say there's dead horses and animals around too, but the horses are trying to, rushing out. The horses are not happy. They're freaking out. People are trying to flee. And she rushes to the small child just as the, the little boy falls. She manages to catch him. He too has the blisters on his skin. Some of them appear to have popped and there's like a yellow oozing fluid and his body is thin but bloated in the stomach area, if you know what I mean. Artemis puts her hand on the child and draws forth the magic, praying to the, the god Tavian help heal this child as she casts all of her healing spells. And she feels strength coming through her, through his hand into the child's chest. And the child starts to breathe. But then she feels another force, something like a black wave of water wash over her. And it interrupts her stop and her spell stops. And she's actually starting to cough and choke like she's drowning. And she feels the chest under her arm. Her hands cough and sputter as well. And she looks down just in time to see the child die. This weight on her of like being underwater. She's not underwater. But she feels that weight washing through her and it's hard to breathe and the child falls from her hands and looking around she looks and again across the street from the direction that she came she sees a robed figure in black skeletal hands face invisible and she could tell that that person was casting a spell whoever that was interrupted her spell and caused that child to die Artemis was not able to save her Artemis is angry. Artemis doesn't get angry a lot. That pretty made her angry. Someone stopped her from saving this child's life. 
And the figure turns and runs back down the alley towards the direction Artemis originally came, and Artemis runs right after her. The figure disappears in the same door Artemis came in, and Artemis runs in, but this time it's a stairs leading down into what are clearly the sewers underneath the city. Stinking waters and filth washing along, but there's a walkway on each side, and she can hear and see in the distance the person running along. She starts chasing the robed figure. Twisting, turning, as water pouring and dripping in from different pipes and such. And she gets it on her and she smells the filth and stink, but she just keeps running, chasing after this person. And she gets finally around. She comes across the metal gate. She heard the gate slam open. She gets there and the door is still swinging. She pushes it open and charges in and she runs into what's clearly some type of central room. And there's two large rivers of water flowing in like ditches, if you will. But they're like uh, sandstone again. It's paved, so it's solid. It's two big troughs of water going by quickly, coming in from one end of round pipes to the other. There appears to be some type of like large wooden boards laying across that, which would allow you to cross. And on the other side is another tunnel with small stairs going up to a doorway with a metal gate on it. Standing across him is the black robe figure. Artemis starts charging forward, and the figure stops and turns, and again, looks like they're about to cast a spell. Artemis has her staff, which is in her hand. She didn't remember holding it a moment ago, but it's there, and she has it, preparing to defend herself. You are too late, the figure screams. There is no water left on this cursed planet that does not carry the taint of our disease. My minions have completed their tasks, and now this world will be cleansed of life. Not one creature will survive the cleansing. The voice is shrill, shriveled, but feminine. Artemis yells out, Why? Why all this? What is going on? The figure seems irritated by the question. He says, it does not matter. When the last person dies, his reign will end. For without us will come the end. How you survive the purge, I do not know. But you will join your brethren shortly. Which implies to Artemis that Brethren, she assumes, clerics. Somehow there was a purge of clerics. And now these, which she can only assume is a cleric of decay or death or some type of necro-wizard, robes are black, something along those lines. Supposedly, this person is, and their minions have poisoned the world's water supply. And everyone's going to die. Because they said, when the last person dies, his reign will end. For without us will come the end. And the person begins casting a spell. Artemis and this person, this cleric, if you will, had a spell battle. Now, the spell battle itself, um, different spells were cast. Artemis, while being primarily a healing cleric, um, does have some slightly more offensive spells in her repertoire. Um, And this person's, a lot of their spells seem to be aimed at plague and disease. Very quickly, it's that type of cleric. And it's the spells that hit Artemis. A lot of times, it's a matter of Artemis healing that spell and sending back of her own. Um, 
and that battle goes on for a little while. Um, there's one thing that happened in the battle that I'm not going to mention, uh, because it's something that happened that shouldn't have. So I'm going to reference it later. So if you're listening to the story, remember this battle, because it's something I'm going to reference later. But it's important that you know there is something, but it's not important right now. It's a side thing. Actually, it was leaked out early by accident. It was a mistake I made during that time. Affected things a little bit, but we're going to fix it. Eventually, Artemis is running low on spells, and she can tell this cleric is as well. And the cleric, reaching into its robes or whatever, pulls out suddenly a staff of its own. And the staff is gnarled and bent. And there's feathers and looks like bones hanging from one end. And the creature starts coming towards Artemis. doesn't move real fast. It's like kind of bent over and shriveled. Uh, if you were to picture the way it walked, imagine the, uh, the, the evil witch in Snow White, but except the face covered. You know what I mean? They bent over with the staff. Comes forward and not much else to do. Artemis comes forward as well and they literally start whacking at each other with their staffs, which is odd because Artemis has never been much of a melee fighter. But this person is moving hunched, but quickly, and Artemis is starting to have a bit of issues. And Artemis reaches down and grabs her whip. Now, I mentioned very early on in the story that Artemis also uses a whip. She uses blunt weapons and weapons that are unbladed. She's pretty handy with that whip, but rarely does she need to use it. And in the battle, she takes the whip, dropping her staff, and manages to whip out and grab, snag the leg of the person and knock them down. The person falls off the edge into the water. The water is only about waist deep, but underneath for a minute slowed the person down and Artemis regains her staff. And as the person is trying to climb out, Artemis comes forward and starts swinging her staff at her. And in that moment, in her eye, Artemis can see the life stone attached to the staff. And as the staff makes clear contact with basically the, the, the chest of the person who's climbing out of the water, it's almost like a baseball. The person just goes flying backwards. There's a spark of blue energy. And the black robe wigger goes flying back, landing on the ground closer to the door they were heading to, and just kind of writhing around in pain. Artemis comes closer and can see that she hurt the person, but what was released was a healing spell. So Artemis' the instinct is then to reach down and literally puts her hand right on the person's chest and cast the strongest healing spell that she had. The figure cries out in pain and anguish. And sounds of like little popping noises. And Artemis feels wetness on her hand. And the person basically like seizure types and then goes still. Artemis is pretty weak at this point. Artemis isn't used to this strong melee combat especially, and she's used a lot of her spells in a short period of time. She feels pretty weak. Not knowing what else to do, she kind of gets down on her knees and decides to check this person, and she pulls the hood off of him. And the person is, the face is all shriveled, and the popping were the boils and such on the face that popped in the face is thin. The hair on its head is almost gone. It's almost balding, but there's wisps of hair on it. The face is shriveled up and very crone witch-like. You see its hands are shriveled with the boils and such on it as well. 
Very gross. Very smelly. Clearly, completely filled with some type of plague or disease. But as she pulls back the hood, the robes sp- spread open a little bit. And artists notice something on the person's chest. And looking closely, she sees a small red blood drap looking tattoo. Right on her chest. Like a teardrop, but crimson red. Not a birthmark. More like a tattoo, but unnaturally so. Hand grabs her wrists. And McCrone leans forward just right up close to Artemis's face and whispers, It was my choice. It was always my choice. And then dies. Artemis, her hand shaking, stands up, looks down at the body one more time, picks up her staff, leaning on it, makes her way out that other door we mentioned on the other side, up the stairs, weighing heavily on her staff, completely drained and exhausted, looking back at the body one last time as she walks through the door. I know we're running super long today and I apologize, but I really want to get this finished. So I hope you'll all forgive me. Mercy comes out of the tent. Her armor shining in the light, looking around. She sees that all the men are preparing. The defenses are built. She knows what is to come. Looking around, she sees the faces of all the knights in her command. She's fought with these men and women for years. She knows that today, many of them, perhaps all of them, may die. She knows that just a short distance behind them is a small town. Right now, other knights are helping the folks flee, trying to help abandon the town. And it's her job, her knights, to stop the ogre forces from getting to them at whatever cost. As, as Mercy walks forward towards the front of the lines, her soldiers stop, saluting, nodding their head. Many of them younger or same age as her, some older, some very, very uh, veterans, but all of them looking to her with respect. She'd more than earned her command, and each one of these soldiers would draw, lay their life down in her name. Across from her, she can see the ogre forces coming down the opposite hill into the valley before her. She counts clearly hundreds. Barely does she have 75 knights with her. A few odds and ends. Like cal- mostly infantry. A couple cavalry, uh, but not enough to send forward. Luckily, the hills on the side kind of make this a choke point, so it's going to kind of funnel the ogre, or, ogres in this direction. But still, the, the odds are completely against them. She sees that in the faces of the knights around her. They know what's coming. But none of them are turning away from their duty. They know that every moment that they keep those forces from passing this line is another moment that innocent people can escape. More forces from the castle are coming. Eventually, the ogre will face the full might of the knighthood. 
Mercy and her knights just have to hold them off long enough to let that happen. Mercy wants to say something. She wants to say something heroic. She wants to say something to lift their spirits, to lead them in battle. But just like always, she just smiles. They smile back. They know her well enough. She's not one for words. She's more with action. And Mercy's going to lead them right from. Mercy's not one to stand in the back. She'll be the first one to take foot on the field and the last one to walk off it. She draws her morning star and the knights around her draw their swords and shields and they prepare as the wall of ogres come rushing towards them. It's like being hit with a mountain. The force of the ogres, much larger than her and her knights, crashing into the forest. But the ogres, wild ogres, no military training, not fighting in any kind of ranks, just coming as beasts and the her knights, well-trained, well-armored, that first burn attack quickly pushed back against some of the ogres. The ogres having a hard time climbing the hills, the sharp hills around them, as she mentioned, are being funneled through. Ogre bodies start to fall. On occasion, one of her knights falls as well. Others will step up to take his place, making sure that wall stays there. And mercy, it's just a sea of green and red orc flesh and blood splattering as her morning star smacks back and forth. The shield defends against incredibly strongly wielded clubs and items knocking her backwards but she doesn't lose her place. Continues to fight on. She knows that there's just more and more coming but each one that she drops, each moment means more than anything else. Crying out to her men, hold the line, continues. And this goes on for a few minutes. It seems like hours in the middle of a battlefield. And the ogres stop coming. Some fall and they find that there's not more coming and they have a moment to catch their breath. And ahead in the, just a short ways ahead, 100, 150 yards, the ogres have stopped. They're just standing there. Bodies of ogres and some humans litter the ground before mercy. The ranks tighten up. They see something large moving through the ogres, pushing their way through. Some of the ogres get pushed aside as this massive ogre comes walking out of the crowd. Ogres themselves are already huge, but this one's a monster. Most likely half-giant, to, to be honest, looking at the size of it. Massive beast. It's club barely more than just a thick tree that it's ripped out of the ground and broken the end off. Comes through with loincloth pretty much only, not doing much to hide anything anyways. Just a savage beast. But the other one's showing deference to it, clearly the leader of this group. And it starts marching forward with the ogres behind it. Mercy sees this coming. She sees them all coming. That beast, with one swing of that tree, is going to take out half of her front line. There's not much Mercy has. The few archers she has in the back are already firing towards it, but the thick leathery skin, most of them are bouncing off or barely penetrating enough to do damage. Mercy knows that they don't have very much longer. That thing is going to decimate their lines. 
For a moment, she thinks of switching from her morning star to her sword. Blade might be better against something like that, especially with its thick hide, thicker than the other ones. The morning star may not be enough. She looks down at her morning star, but her morning star is not in her hand anymore. Instead, she's holding in her hand some kind of rock. And it's shimmering, almost with a, also glowing. And she knows that this rock is powerful. She looks at it, and she looks at the ogres, confidently walking forward, sneering and yelling, knowing they're about to destroy the human force before them. And she knows that this rock could be the difference between victory and the death of not just all of her men and women here, but of the town behind her. But she also knows that things like this and magic are sworn off by the knighthood. Magic is not allowed. <clears throat> Excuse me. It doesn't take a second for her to make the decision. She takes the stone, she presses it against her head, and she feels warmth as it merges with her skin. She feels it sinking in. And instantaneously, she can feel the ground vibrating as the ogres are moving. She can feel the footsteps of her men nervously stepping back and forth. She can even feel the creatures moving deep within the earth below her, worms and other small things. She feels everything in the ground, the tremor, the such. But she also feels strength and strong. And she feels like her roots are sinking into the earth. And she starts walking forward. Her knights, unsure, not wanting to break the line, kind of watching disbelief, but as she steps forward, the earth and the rock under her feet start sliding up out of the ground and start moving up her body. And she starts growing. And the rock starts to engulf her legs and then up to her arms. But the rock continues to move fluidly as if it's not there, but farming, forming a hard, thick shell around her. And as it does, she grows. And soon she's larger. And she feels herself wrapped within this earth around her. And even though it's solid rock, to her it feels like she can feel every itch of it. And her morning star is in her hand and it starts to cover in rock and it gets larger and larger until it's twice the size of normal. And as the giant ogre steps in, swinging its club, she swings with her morning star and its club just shatters. Her knights cheer and rush forward. The ogres, angry, charge forward. With one clench of her fist, she wills the rock beneath them to hurl up, and spikes of stone come flying out of the ground and from the sides of the hill themselves. She can feel them piercing the flesh of the ogres, tripping them, falling them, stabbing them, killing them. While at the same time, she can feel her own morning star come crashing down on the skull of that huge ogre and just feeling it crumple under the weight of the stone that she's now a part of. As that massive body falls backwards and the ground begins to shake and tremble and more ogres are falling, she just starts smashing with that club and ogres just fall. 
only takes a couple of moments for the ogres to realize this is not the right decision for them. And in a rare show, the ogres turn and flee back across the field which they came. She pursues them only for a moment, taking down a few of the stragglers. But then she stops as she sees the ogres running for their lives, dropping weapons. And she feels the earth melting off her body as she drops down to once again be standing on her feet, still feeling the earth all around her, like she's one with it. She hears a horse behind her. She felt it coming. She felt all of them coming. She could feel the hoof beats from a great distance as the army that was coming to assist them rode up behind them. And she turns and she sees the knights that have arrived. And the lead head knight, clearly denoted with rank, looks at her and says, What have you done? The arrest was immediate. Her weapons are taken from her. Her men aren't real happy about it, but clearly outnumbered, and these being their own men, nobody fights back. Mercy is arrested. And she is charged with breaking her vows. The next time period flows very quickly. It could be hours or it could be days, but before she really knows what's happened, she knows she's locked in a room. A simple bed, plenty of food and water. She's still a knight by all means, and she's still treated as such, but she knows that she's diff- confined to these quarters, waiting until finally the door knocks and opens. And she sees a knight standing there, stern-faced, tells her it's time. She doesn't have her weapons or armor. They've all been taken. She can still feel the warmth of the stone in her forehead. She follows the knight into the grand chambers of the keep. She takes her place to stand trial. She's accused of using magic. And while her heroics ends do not justify the means, magic is a step to corruption and it is completely unallowed. And to allow magic to become part of her, because they've all discovered there's no way to get rid of it. She has broken all of their tenets. She may have saved many lives, but an example has to be set. She can tell that several on the tri- on the the ruling there's like six or seven knights up there passing judgment. She can tell that several of them are not happy with what has to be done. But rules are rules. And even though she's called a hero of the battle, she's also under her. She was also treason. Using magic. Mercy has nothing to say in her defense. She's quiet. She knew when she used magic to save the lives of those under her command that this would happen. She has no excuses to make. She has no regrets. She would take the same actions again should she need to. The head knight stands, about to pass judgment. Mercy prepares herself, knowing what's to come. When the doors in the back of the chamber slam open, everyone turns and looks. And a group of knights come marching in, most of them younger. 
head knight says something along the lines of, you should not be here. It's forbidden. Great thing, things are being handled here. You must leave. And the knights continue forward. And one of them, a little bit younger than the others, but Mercy recognizes. She doesn't recognize him. Like, I don't know who this is, but she knows like it's his second in command. You know, this is her right-hand man kind of thing in her troop, uh, ranking-wise and such. And she doesn't recognize him, but she knows it's him kind of thing. Steps forward and states that this trial is a, is a farce and that they will not allow it to continue. Mercy's actions have never, ever been anything other than protecting the good and doing what is right. And regardless of the means that she did that, she did it for the best reasons, and she succeeded in what their true calling is, and that is to protect the innocent and help those who need assistance. And that if this is how she is to be treated, then he and the rest of her command have no need of this court or of this knighthood. Mercy smiles, because she's always liked the kid. <laughs> His words are poetic, a little bit more poetic than she is, unless she lets him do the talking sometimes. She smiles to see that, you know, they would rather do what's right than to do what's legal. And the knight said, she'll be leaving with us today. And no longer will we follow your rules. And he tosses his shield down and loud clanging noises. The shields of all the other knights hit the ground. They're not armed. They don't have swords drawn. They're not here to attack anyone. The shields are purely symbolic. They drop their shields. And the young man turns and holds out Mercy's Morning Star, which she takes. And in that moment, she realizes that she can do more good outside the confines and the rigidity of the knighthood that she was raised to believe in. If she does what's right, she can truly follow the tenets that she believes in. Sometimes that means breaking the rules. And she nods at the young man. And she looks at the, the knights to pass judgment. She turns and walking with her men, leaves the room. The head knight calls out that this is a betrayal and that you are turning from the order. And the young man stops and Mercy turns and looks at him and looks at them and says, the order turned from us long ago and we are the betrayed, but no longer. And Mercy and the young man walk out the door into darkness. All four of the heroes come awake at the same time. They're in a large room, all laying in comfortable beds. How somebody lifted Darshan there, nobody knows. All their weapons and personal items are all sitting there. There's no one else in the room. They get up look at each other, kind of thinking, okay, what just happened? What's going on here? Last time I walked through a door, then all this funky stuff. Artemis looks at her staff and then quickly rushes over to it. The life stone is no longer on it. 
They open the chest of holding and they check their stuff and all the stones are gone. They're about to grab their stuff and run out to see what's happening here when the door, knock on the door and it opens. One of the monks steps in. Gestures that they should come with him. They get their weapons and they follow them. They only go a short distance before they walk into another room, much like the round room with the doors, but this one there are no doors. There's just that one monk that spoke to them sitting in the middle of the floor. And they come walking in. And he said, You were successful. Not all of you, but enough. And so for that, your mission will be completed. You have brought the seven stones to join the eighth. And he reaches up and he pulls off the headband on his head and they see the last gem merged into his forehead. In his other hand, he opens and they see the, all the other stones. And now they're worried. This guy is holding all eight of these stones at this point, which in itself could be enough to really cause some damage. And he lightly tosses them into the air, but they don't fall. They kind of hang there for a moment. They hear the door close behind them. They look back. And the stones are now kind of spinning in a circle in front of him. You can see that he's casting some kind of a spell. And as the seven stones spin, his eighth stone is directly in the center. And they see little crackles of light, different colors, kind of bouncing between the stones. He said, The stones are a means to an end, and they contain what you seek. Prepare yourself. And they're like, well, what do you mean by pre-? And then there's just an explosion of energy. Lights blinding everywhere. And their hands are up, and they can't, even with their eyes closed, it's enough to, like, burn their retinas. And it hurts, it's so bright. And they feel themselves, they fall to their knees and they're trying to put their face against the floor the only way they can to try to keep the light from leaking into their eyes. It hurts. And it's like a ringing sound of silence. You know, if you're in a room with no sound at all, so quiet it hurts. You can heal their own heart beating. And then the light stops. takes a moment for their eyes to adjust and they find themselves again in the same room but alone the door behind them open again Darsh is like I'm getting a little tired of this grabbing something just marching out the door again takes them a few minutes to kind of find their way around but they once again come walking into the grand chamber where everyone was eating before, but this time the tables are all moved to the side and the floor is mostly open. <clears throat> and they stop as soon as they walk in because in the center of the room, lying on this large piece of what looks like a cloth, but thick, almost like leather, are all the magical artifacts, the weapons that were lost, the whole thing they were seeking to get. And with all of these weapons, if they can get them to Zoltan, he believes he can get them all home. The one monk that speaks steps up to them. They still see the stone 
glowing underneath the headband that he's wearing. He says, you came for these. As he's speaking, monks are rolling up the carpet with all the weapons wrapped inside. He goes, keep them inside this cloth. It is enchanted. If you keep them inside of that, no one will be able to detect them. There's still a dark force out there seeking them just like you. And now that they're in the world again, he will come for them. But wrapped inside this cloth, they cannot be detected. Keep them hidden. Do not use them. For if you do, he will be able to find them as well. What about the stones? Says Mercy. He smiles and looks at her. He goes, This stone shall stay with me as it always has. As for the others, he points near the door out. They look and they see there are several monks putting on backpacks and packing up with what appears to be journeys. He goes, They will be separated again, taken to different places and different locations as they're supposed to be. We will once again seed them out into the world until such time that they need to be gathered, which could be time unknown. Isn't that a little dangerous? Just putting them back out into the world, says Dandy. What if they fall into the wrong hands? He says, undoubtedly some of them will, and some of them will fall into the right hands. But they will all end up where they're supposed to be. That's how this works. The prophecy requires that they maintain freedom. So they will be delivered and distributed where they need to go. Like, how do you know where they're supposed to go, says Dandy. He goes, I've been told. And so we will take them and we will distribute them. But it will be a very long time before I think any of them shall see the light of day. They will be hidden well until they're needed. But the weapons, that which you came for, those are yours. You'll take those with you and return them to your demigod and see if he can succeed where he wants to. Darshan and everybody, they pack up the stuff, they take the rug, which is pretty long. There's some longer weapons in there, but they manage to lug it down inside the chest of holding. They realize inside the chest of holding, it's probably one of the best spots for it, even in the rugs, because in there, they normally couldn't be found anyways. So they determine that no matter where they go, they're going to probably keep them inside that chest. It's going to be hard not to use them. They're powerful weapons, and they've helped them in the past, but the fear that Nilat may find them if they're being used is, is way worse. The monk talks to him a little bit, tells a little bit of the stones, that he's the keeper of this stone. They have been in charge of these stones for thousands of years. They're, they exist purely for the keeping of the stones. And the attorney stone will eventually pass into another one's hand when his life ends. But they will keep it safe, protected here. In this place, it cannot be taken from them. They don't explain what that means. He says, here, this stone cannot be taken. And as for the others, they will go where they need to be until they're needed. A couple questions were asked, fill in a little bit of the backstory. But at the end of it, they have the weapons, everything that they've been seeking for. They've also got memories of the weird things and experiences they had when they went through their doors and not sure what that means. They do find out that what happened was not real, was not physically existing. It was something magical in nature, which makes Dandy feel a lot better because that means she didn't really kill Michael, which she was stressing about. Um, but... Supposedly, it meant something about them and something that will happen to them in the future, which does make her nervous. But gathering up the weapons, it's time for them to go home. Luckily, they have their rings of teleportation, and they can pop back home very, very quickly. 
And so that's what they bid the monks farewell, thanking for their assistance. And they used their ring of central teleportation to teleport back to their homes, appearing in the darkness in the basement. And they appear inside this secret hidden room that's completely trapped and guarded that no one else can get into. And they appear there like they always do. And before they can even move from behind them, they hear, Hello, friends. And that's where we're going to stop for today. So, I know we ran way longer than normal. Um, this was a much longer tale. I th probably should have broken this into two episodes, but we were kind of right into it there, so I apologize for the length. Um, this may be listed as two separate episodes when I post it audio on iTunes and Spotify. just depends on how big the file is. Um, if it's too long, um, I may have to split it into two. I won't know, but I will have them up tomorrow one way or the other. Uh, so if it up comes up as audio, this is episode 18. It may be 18 and 18.5. If I can get it all in one, I'll definitely do so. Um, but thank you very much. As a quick side note, where we stopped here in the story is exactly where I stopped when we played it. And the young lady who was playing Dandy and Mercy actually was going away for a few months. She was actually going out of the country. And so they had several months to sit and stew to figure out who that was. Um, and boy, did they have a lot of ideas. So uh, it was several months before they got to find out. But luckily, you guys will find out in two more weeks when we uh, enter into what I consider the next chapter of uh, the Merged World story. Um, I'm very excited. I hope you all enjoyed it today. If you did enjoy it, please click like. Also, be sure to hit subscribe. Uh, you can go to my website, onlydraven.com, and there you can join our Discord channel. Uh, you can also uh, see the streaming schedule, all my socials. Follow me at Twitter. Tomorrow I'll be announcing a special Twitter-based contest uh, for a cool prize. You'll see that coming out tomorrow. And then tomorrow night will also be um, Monday... Uh, Minecraft Monday. So we'll be going to Space and Galacticraft tomorrow. So I'm excited for that. Thank you all very much for coming by. I'm going to go ahead and sum this up. Oh, thank you, uh, Glitched Vision. I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> thank you all very much for coming by. I appreciate all of you. Special thank you to all of the members. I appreciate you, you folks, being part of the membership. It really would help me finance and be able to do all this stuff. If you click the Join button on my YouTube channel, you'll see what's part of a membership. It's something you can sign up for if you're interested. Uh, and an extra special thank you to my moderators who helped me keep this all running. So thank you very much again. I'm going to go ahead and end this extra long episode. You all have yourselves a wonderful evening, and we will see you very soon. Thank you very much for coming by.